Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Good day, Mr. Bast. Hello, Brett. How are you? I'm well. Good. Hi, Nelson. Nice to see you. So we're here today. We have a wonderful guest. We always use the word special, Special, but I'm going to say wonderful (laughs) guest today on our podcast. We are very happy to have him here. He is, and I'm not going to say his name just yet. I'm going to do a little bit of intro. I'm going to leave you in suspense. He is a two-time exited entrepreneur. He is the current chair of the Beacon Council Technology Committee. He co-founded this may give it away a little bit. He co-founded a company called WinCode. I know who it is. South Florida Business Journal Startup of the Year and Beacon Council Education and Talent Development Award winner with over 1,000 graduates. WinCode was recently acquired by BrainStation. This man has raised millions in venture capital. He was selected as an Endeavor entrepreneur. He is business and technology savvy. And he is just people savvy. I wouldn't. Yeah, I, I was going to say well. I wouldn't live in his savviness to technology. He's, yeah, he's generally savvy. I think that's fair. Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. He is a graduate of the Rotman School of Management in Toronto. He is Finnish and Canadian. He is Yuha Mikola. Welcome, Mr. Mikola. Thank you. Thanks. What an intro. I'm, I'm very honored to be here, guys. It's a little it dramatic, awesome. too. It, well, very dramatic. I was like, who are you talking about? Yeah. I want to meet this guy. <laughs> See, I even surprised our guest. Who is with, this guy? With, Where do you get right. your info? Yeah, it's, it's Great really hard. Great really hard on the World Wide Web over there. It's very hard to find. I didn't get into all the businesses or the businesses that he exited, but the man is super successful, had really started the coding and the technology sort of ramp up here in Miami before it was a thing. And it now apparently is a thing. And Yuha is knee deep in it. And I want you, Yuha, to tell us a little bit more about your background on our listeners, uh, a little bit more about your background that I may have missed. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is super cool. And yeah, it's been exciting to see Miami transition in the the last eight years. So my wife and I, Joe, are the co-founders of WinCode. And we moved down to Miami to to start the business. And when we got here eight years ago, it was a very different place. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is eight years ago, you said? So 2004? Is that more uh, or less? Wait, what? 14. 2014. Yeah. I was like, wait, okay. We're lawyers. <laughs> we don't, yeah, we don't do that. People do that for you. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So where did you come from? So we were based in Toronto before that for over a decade. Joe, she's originally Finnish-Canadian. Her parents are, are Finns, but she grew up in Toronto. And we already met in high school back back in Finland, and she always wanted to go back to Canada. I always wanted to get back to the States because I spent some time in Florida from kindergarten to fourth grade. My family lived in the Palm Beach area. So we always had this North American dream, and we ended (laughs) up in Toronto for a while. I built my first business there, which was a sporting goods business for the sport of floorball, which uh, is an indoor... Sport of floorball. Sport of floorball. We need to explore. Uh, Yeah. I'm not familiar with that one. You'll have to Google it and see some highlights. It's uh, (laughs) Imagine uh, indoor hockey, like a floor hockey type game, but with much more advanced equipment, rules that kind of... Rooms and tennis balls or something? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know... I'm talking about Harry Potter. (laughs) There was some magic to it, but not that kind of magic. But anyway, huge sport in Northern Europe, like Finland, Sweden, Switzerland, Czech Republic, all have pro leagues. You get 15,000 people to games. It's Olympic recognized, not in the Olympics yet, but I just loved playing the sport growing up. I was a big hockey fan, but being in Florida as a kid, 
never really learned to skate. So mm. this was like the perfect sport where I could kind of combine my passion but not be like 10 years behind all the other kids who, who are amazing skaters. And when I moved to Toronto, I thought, what could be better than promoting like a new hockey mm. sport in Canada? Not realizing that Canadians love their type of hockey yeah. and bringing a <laughs> right. European finesse, high energy kind of soccer-esque twist to hockey was not universally accepted, let's put it that way. But I'm a person who doesn't give up. So we decided the way to convince people to play the sport was through the school system when when kids were just getting into it. And at the end of it, we had over a thousand schools playing. We had partnerships with Hockey Canada and USA Hockey wow. for skills training. We were in over a hundred retailers just loved what I was doing. It was a real passion project and taught me a lot about business. And it was also, it wasn't just about the equipment. We ran all the tournaments and leagues. We ran a thousand person event called Canada Cup that was televised at the end from Maple Leaf Gardens, like the most storied building in hockey. So wow. it was amazing. I loved doing it, but it made no money. It was incredibly <laughs> stressful. I lived in a minivan driving across the country. And I thought the part that I actually liked the most was the technology aspect. So we had an e-com store because we had all these pockets of players that one little town would get into it. And all of a sudden, all the kids would be into it. And instead of the $40 stick, they wanted the $200 stick. And the retailer wouldn't carry yet. So we had our own stores online quite early, like 2001, 2002. So I love that aspect of it. And I decided I want to get more into tech. I actually attended a coding school in Toronto. And that was kind of my introduction to, mm. wow, technology is actually something like all of us can do. You don't need to be a computer science grad to understand it. Wow. So you made the transition to tech before you moved or after you moved or as you moved was the move to Miami for the transition? So it, it kind of all happened really quick. So this was 2014 as we were kind of going through this. And I think it had been years of floorball kind of, we were growing, but not at the scale that was kind of keeping me engaged. And I think like it took so much out of me, that project, you know, I just loved doing it, but it was a lot of effort. And I decided to just attend the school and see what would happen. And I thought maybe something would come out of it. Maybe I'd build a startup or whatever. And Seeing the school operate, I was like, this is an amazing concept. Like, why don't we take this? The, the school the, itself. The, the coding school. Right. Why don't we take this and launch this in a market where one doesn't exist and kind of help build community like we had with Floorball, but instead for technology and kind of realizing like maybe there's parallels. And when people are thinking about career changes, I often tell them there's so much in your background that like will relate to new businesses or new careers that you have no idea, right? Like building communities, like just a theme. I was like, oh, great. I could kind of put this to something new. So we looked at Austin, we looked at Los Angeles, and we looked at Miami. And it was so early for Miami, even compared to those other cities. But we had this background where my parents had this place. And I always loved Florida. And, and the Wynwood neighborhood was just starting to pick up. It, it really felt like what we had seen in Toronto five years earlier. And mm -hmm. this is like, hey, this has the energy, you know, that's going to kind of get people to get excited about technology and kind of the future and all the rest for what the city could have in store. So ended up attending the school, deciding with my wife and co-founder, Joe, she had a great job at the National Hockey League, running the officiating department, like largest department she in the league. She wasn't threatened by the, uh, by the floorball. Like there was no threat there. Like no, there's no, we didn't get big enough. Competitive, uh, <laughs> it was Yuha's pet project is how she referred right. to it. I think. <laughs> exactly. Right, exactly. Right, right. She opened some one great, great doors. One spouse works for the NHL, <laughs> NHL and the other one runs the floor hockey. Exactly, right. exactly. exactly. Yes. I'm, I'm sure many people saw that as we were uh, walking walking around together it's in the hockey, hockey circles. It's got hockey in the name. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, it's right. right. Yeah, so, sort of. So as you transition down, you come down to Miami, decide, hey, you know, we're going to give this coding school thing a try. We're going to pick, we picked Miami. It could not have been easy back then, right? In Miami, like you said, Wynwood was just sort of starting, right? 
And there wasn't a lot of tech here in Miami. So what kind of challenges did you see trying to do that? Yeah, it was, I think we didn't want to take no for an answer. So we're like, we're going to make this work. And we had a lot of questions. I mean, who's going to teach? Who's going to build the curriculum? Who's going to hire these people? Where are we going to get students from? Like, none of this had been done before. So we just had to figure it out. And we decided to look at every article that had been written about Miami Tech, which at that point was like seven. And we printed (laughs) all of them like old school and (laughs) highlighted the names of everyone mentioned. I'm like, I'm going to go down for Christmas vacation and just meet with each one of these people and ask them, like, can they help us? Like, do they have ideas? Who should we connect with? And first of all, which I think is still true for Miami today, everyone took the meeting. Some took like 20 calls to get the meeting, but didn't give up and got the meetings with everyone all the way up to like Matt Hagman at Knight Foundation. It's just like, this is our vision. This is what we're building in Miami. And I think that really helped like convince us on it. And then we had a lot of good fortune. Like we sold our condo in Toronto. That was the seed money to start the business here. And the person who bought, it's random. We had a Four Seasons bed through one of Joe's friends. And we're like, we can't take it. But apparently these things are like, have a really hot secondary market. So this woman comes to buy this bed. And it turns out she works for a tech recruiting company that was based out of Fort Lauderdale. And she was able to print (laughs) out all of the stats of every open job uh, in all of South Florida. So we took that list, met with all of those companies talk to them what they wanted, like, what should we teach in order to get our grads jobs there? And yeah, just one thing led to another. And wow. we found our location at the Lab Miami. And then we got our first students and that first group all got jobs right away because we had set it all up. And that was just this like flywheel started. And it was still early days, but we could see like, okay, if the first 14 all got jobs, we're onto something. There's a real demand here. Wow. So who are the students that you were seeing, like demographics, at least early on? And did that change throughout the years? That's you know? a great question. It actually didn't change much. Like mm-hmm. it was our average age was always like kind of between 28 and 31. Mm-hmm. Majority college grads. We did a lot of scholarships and things to get people who weren't college grads through the program. But the sort of a main persona coming through was like a college grad having a many times a decent job, but something that they weren't excited about. Sort of similar to like my feelings with floorball. I could really relate to that where I was like doing something that I enjoyed and loved, but something was missing, you know, and the Mm -hmm. transition, the desire to go into tech where, you know, you're building something like often that's like, you're trying to shift the paradigm. You're trying to do something really big. So people who are motivated by that, obviously early adopters who weren't afraid that this type of education was somewhat unproven, especially in Miami. And then also people like at the beginning, at least who had the means to like take 10 weeks of their life full time and kind of trust us to do that. Mm So in general, it was like the backgrounds, we could never figure out like, okay, we had lawyers, we had accountants, we had valet drivers, we had a zookeeper, a train conductor. Like there was no like real thing where it's like, okay, we're going to recruit from here. You helped Um, me with the lawyers. And then when you got the zookeeper, train conductor, I felt, all right, this is fiction. (laughs) Yeah, this is all crazy true stories. So it was just like, so that made actually like our marketing a bit hard because we couldn't like just focus on one type one, of persona. Right. The thing what was unique about everyone was their desire to change their lives and get into technology and yeah. work super hard. So the end result we knew was going to be the same, but where people came from was super wide. But yeah, then, and I think on that topic, I mean, you mentioned this before, this idea that that you'd be surprised at how much is in your background. And I would love to, when you said that, I thought, oh, we should explore that a bit because you were the emblem of this idea, right? So you had yourself gone undergone this incredible transition and here you were selling a platform that was a life transition, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like I could completely even to this day as students are going through brain station like 100% relate to what they're going through because I actually sat in seats like the seats that they're sitting in in Toronto going through that transition myself and 
figuring out, is this going to work? What's going to happen? Where am I going to end up? And I think that taking like believing in yourself and that your background can apply to a completely different industry, a very competitive one where to be honest, people are spending a lot of money getting a four-year computer science degree. And now here you are doing a 10-week program and thinking you can get the same jobs after. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of hustle and a lot of desire. And I think that's what works with programs like this. There's self-selection too with the people who come through. And how to, because there's a lot of, I hesitate to use the word fraud, but there's a lot of alternative schools that are maybe not selling what they propose to be selling. Well, it's for-profit, right? You know, the for-profit, for-profit schools, schools right? that are really not. And how did you guys avoid that being categorized in that manner? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, first of all, we were not from the industry. So we just came into this like industry, which in Florida is a huge industry, right? Like there's a lot of for-profit schools, right? Not to throw anybody on the bus, but ranging from like nursing programs to, you know, whatever type of development programs for you name it, like trade scuba school. schools, yeah, trade tradesmen, schools, like, yeah, trade schools, you know, right. there's a million of these like right. tattoo schools, like pick an industry and there's schools that exist for it. And I think like seeing it kind of from the inside, like, I don't want to say that it made me discouraged about the state of education, but it's incredible sort of the lack of connection between what you pay for school and the actual return on investment. Mm -hmm. That was the thing that like still to this day, like drives me crazy. I think education, it's amazing to broaden your horizons. And I'm not trying to say don't go to college and all of these things, but I think having some kind of link to what you pay and what ends up coming out of that should be public knowledge of every program before you go in. So what we decided to do, partly to avoid what your question is referring to, is we did a third-party verified report every year of our placement outcomes. So we would list every student, what happened to them, how long it took them to get a job, what their average salary was, and then we released an overall placement rate number. Mm. So what that allowed us to do is kind of like self-regulate because the regulators didn't care about that. You know, so we're like, every time someone asked that question, and sometimes it was the student, sometimes it was their parents if they were helping with funding or the wife or the husband, if, if one of the partners was going through the course, we could say, check out our jobs report. And the media loved it. They would always cover it because it would give overall trends of the Miami tech ecosystem. Our salary went up every year. We tracked how many female grads. We started with like something like 5%. At the end, we were close to 30% women because we were doing a lot of initiatives to try to get to parity. So there are all these great things coming out of it. We realized we were the most diverse code school in the country. So there are all these things that really like mattered, partially thanks to being in Miami, which is such a diverse city. So we loved it. And it really helped us sort of like try to frame the discussion around what's going to happen to you. And what better way to know than look at the report, which is verified by an accounting firm. So that was the thinking for us. So, I mean, at the time, right, you guys, not only do you have to build this thing up and sell people on the fact that you can train them and you're running a legitimate coding school, but you also have to deal with, well, and there's jobs, right? You do this 10 weeks and you're going to get a job. So how did you sort of figure that out? And what did you see in your time at WinCode in terms of the sort of the transition from when you started here to when you sold WinCode, like what were the jobs like? Yeah, I mean, I think the average salaries kept going up, which Mm -hmm. was great. I think also the type of companies hiring kept becoming larger. At the beginning, it was just startups that like really needed people and were willing to take a risk. And I want to give a special shout out to like CareCloud was our first hiring partner and they made a press release with us before we even had a class to say anyone that we hire out of here we'll pay back your tuition as a signing bonus. And that was like a sign to the market that like, look, 
we trust these guys to educate. Product, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and for us, it was great because I had never dealt with tech companies in my life. Like, how do I know how they hire, what the process is like? So allowed us and them also to kind of implement some of the things in our curriculum that they wanted to. But when I look at traditional education, again, I don't want to like be like a alarmist or talk badly about, but like we've tried to hire, like, for example, from some of the colleges right now as BrainStation, we're looking to add to our team of sales and marketing people. Like the way to get into the sales program is you have to go and pay $15,000 sponsorship for the campus. And then you have to go there and set up a booth and you have to interview each person. And like, isn't the school's job to try to get that student a job? It's not to make more money on the student who's already paid tens of thousands of dollars. Everything what we did with hiring partners is 100% free. We did anything to get them on campus. We set up interviews for them. We recommended specific students. We we would drive a person to an interview if we had to, to try to make sure Sure. that that they would get this job because that was our promise to the student. And I feel like in education, Somehow that's been lost, you know, where it's like, oh, it's this big system and yeah, everybody will get a job. But if you look at the numbers and the stats, that's not true. And I think you need to work with the market. You got to work with the companies. And the second that companies tell you something like, look, we hired somebody from another school because they were technically better at this or culturally they were better at this. You have to go and change your curriculum right away. Right. Well, that's one observation I made before is that you said you tailored the curriculum to the demands of the job market. And so... I mean, that's right off the bat, you know, nobody's doing that, right? Yeah, and it's difficult for a couple of reasons. One, as a small educator, it's a lot of investment. And you're having to hire people who are top of the food chain in terms of technology to build this stuff because it's constantly cutting edge. You can't change it every single cohort, but we made changes. We had four cohorts per year because they were like one per quarter, basically. We'd always make some changes. There would always be some improvements, but then every couple of years, like we would overhaul everything and just be like, we're starting from scratch. We're investing. This is going to take time. We need more educators to help us build this thing. Mm -hmm. And you need industry people. You can't have the same people teaching over and over again, which is also a problem with traditional education, is people get tenure and they're professionally just teaching, right? And they don't know what's going on in a market that changes as fast as technology. Mm -hmm. So those are all things that were really like driving sort of us forward all the time. And it's the same philosophy that BrainStation has in everything that they do. Yeah, I mean, I think what you've recognized and you've highlighted here is that you were really selling sort of two products, right? One is the actual coding and teaching the coding and how to do it, but also the job at the end of the day. Because without that, WinCode may get off the ground briefly, but it's not going to be sustained. Yeah, yeah. And it it always like surprised me that people go to schools where there isn't that connection to to jobs. Like it always baffles, even to this day. I'm like, so what's the end result? And people are like, oh, well, I'm going to be this and this. And it's like, well, is there a job for you for that? And they're like, oh, there might be. I don't know. Like, what's the open job number? It's like, oh, there's actually more people with this credential than jobs. It's like, okay, maybe think about that. Like, is that the right sort of place to go into? So yeah, I think it was all about that. And I think going back to the early days, mm-hmm. a worry I always had was how big the tech market was here. You know, when we were graduating 15 students, okay, I could imagine getting all of them jobs. At the top, when we were graduating almost like 200 students a year, it's like now your processes are really tested. Right. But the market is also tested. Like we were kind of limited with how big the market was. So there were a few moments over the seven years like where I felt we were slightly ahead of the market. We had a little bit too many grads. So then we'd be like, okay, Let's scale back. Let's actually increase tuition, increase the product quality, make it a little bit longer and graduate slightly less people so we can make sure we get everyone jobs. So it was kind of like an interesting balance with a smaller tech market at the time in Miami. So how many coding schools are there in Miami now? 
I'd say there's maybe like three or four Mm -hmm. different options and there's different sort of alternatives, like kind of pure coding schools that do and digital design. So we also do UX UI, which is the how an app looks and operates, which is actually some careers and higher paying jobs and even coding today. Mm -hmm. But there's only a couple of schools that do that. Then there's a lot of schools that have tried to kind of implement this into their curriculums or they license it from other places. And those are the ones where I always ask people like, go meet the instructors, go talk to student success stories. Because the number of people who came back to us and were like, man, I wish I had known about you guys, but I already spent the money and can you help me get a job now? (laughs) We're like, well, I'll do my best, but you don't have the skills needed because it's an ancient curriculum and they have no connections in the local market. So that was a big selling point for us too. Like I think over 500 companies hired from us. Do any of the students, do any of your graduates come back? Do they come back for another program? Is it the kind of thing where... There's sort of continuing education, if you will. Like I'd say unfortunately not. Yeah, we really tried to do like sort of like master's type programs. Right. But the thing with technology is like once you know how it works, like let's say you learn JavaScript with us and then your next job is a Python job. Mm-hmm. The fundamental sort of way that you set something up, the language might be different, but the concepts are the same. And the same goes like let's say you've been working as a JavaScript developer since you graduated from WinCode in 2016. Now you want to be a blockchain developer. You can learn that. You don't need us to do it. You can find resources online. And and we're kind of proud of that. We're like, it's great that our grads are able to do that and keep kind of reinventing. But it made for a tough sort of repeat business model. We always had to find new customers, basically. So you basically gave them the foundation that they could build off of. Correct. Exactly. And and people gave it to themselves. I mean, they right. there's no doubt it's it's amazing to have this sort of program, but it doesn't work without people working super hard and like putting everything else off their plate. And that's the one thing of everybody who did the program was successful, like crazy hard work and focus. So did WinCode go remote during pandemic? Yes. We did. Okay. Yeah. I mean, even to this day, like mm-hmm. our campus in Winwood, we mm-hmm. haven't had students since March 2020. Yeah. And I still remember those days like so clearly because yeah. it was just it was crazy. We had always said we're not going to teach online because there were a lot of players that had raised hundreds of millions to build online platforms, mm-hmm. Silicon Valley, VC funded companies that were doing 10,000 students a year. And I could hear on the fringes about the quality because none of those people were getting jobs from our hiring partners in Miami. And so I knew, okay, we're still doing something good here. And then we had no choice. It's like, okay, right. you have to go online and figure this out. And kudos to the team. Like they figured it out in two days. And we just decided to do like, completely like the same experience, but just over Zoom. So like nothing was automated. It was all an instructor teaching you. We actually increased our staff numbers so that there were more teaching assistants that could be connected with each student, checking in with everyone. Someone missed a, like everyone had to have video on. If someone missed a session, we would call them. We would call their parents if they were younger (laughs) to be like, what happened? Because it's hard to engage people online, you know? So we tried to figure out all these things and just kind of like bootstrapped it. The amazing thing was we ended up with more students than we had before because all of a sudden now someone in Orlando or someone in LA whose sister did WinCode because she lived in Miami, all of them ended up enrolling. So we had this bump. We went from this crisis where everyone who was signed up backed out because they're like, the world's ending. And then you go to your smallest cohort ever. And then the next cohort all of a sudden is the biggest you've ever had. And that's kind of where the acquisition sort of momentum started too, because we're like, wow, this is really great numbers. And then people started knocking on our door after that. So Miami now is moving into this tech scene and everyone's talking about how Miami has got this tech scene and maybe it's going to be the next tech capital or not. I don't know. But I mean, even Kara Swisher brought her Pivot podcast here and had a conference here, I think, this week. Anyway. Pivot Miami. 
Pivot Miami. We should really right. be promoting our competition on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they'll give you a shout out. I listen to their podcast. Yeah, so. maybe Kara uh, will do that for <laughs> Call us. Call Kara out enough. And exactly. We maybe, maybe need something scandalous, though, to get her to <laughs> yeah, listen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we do both. We, I think all three of us in this room really enjoy listening to her <laughs> yeah. podcast. Yeah. So the Miami moment, right? So where are we in Miami? And is this really Miami's moment? Or is it going to be fleeting and, and just kind of wither away? To me, it's incredible to see what's happened, just to be totally honest. I mm-hmm. think like at the beginning of the pandemic, there was signs that this was occurring. And I think like I've been in Miami long enough to know that there's a lot of glitz and marketing and the substance is not always there behind what's happening. And maybe that was my initial reaction to be like, okay, maybe there's just a couple of really loud California VCs or tech leaders who've made the move and they want to get some validation for it. And hopefully they'll convince a couple other people to move. But I can tell you guys, it's real. Like this is more than a moment. This is people who've like, uprooted their lives and decided Florida and in particular Miami is like where they want to live, where they want to bring up their kids, where they want to spend their days. And they're buying houses, they're making commitments and connecting with local organizations, Mm -hmm. making new friends. It's quite incredible. It's what Joe and I did eight years ago and it seemed to make sense to us back then. And now to see so many people getting behind that and realizing that this is actually like an incredible place to live is awesome. And I think the fact that it's technology people, it's also finance people, right? So there's kind of two. It's New York, it's California for the most part. And I think there's a bunch of reasons, but like the fact that we now looking back, like kind of got how we handled COVID in a in a positive way for a lot of people. Like the fact that things were as open as they were definitely attracted people early on. But that got people to come here and see like, okay, it's a very open city. There's a lot of opportunity to grow and kind of be a leader. The lifestyle's, I think, hard to compete with from the perspective of a lot of other places. And the other thing is, if you're successful, the tax difference to California or New York is like paying for your $10 million waterfront place, right? The tax savings pay that mortgage. I've heard that more than once from people that I've talked to. So I think those have kind of all colluded to this like situation where it's like now picking up steam to it's not the top anymore. It's people who've read about that and have come in for a hackathon or whose friends are like, have a hacker house condo where like three people are living in there and building different products and raising money. And now Mm -hmm. all the VCs are here. So people are flying into Miami to raise money, which is absurd because before nobody would touch your company if it was Miami based, they'd be like, move. And then maybe we'll talk, right? Mm -hmm. Now people are coming here to raise capital. So these changes are really massive in terms of the whole infrastructure. And I think We've also like taken a stance as a city sort of about first crypto and now it's becoming more decentralization and Web3. And I think the jury is still out on how much that's going to change everything about how the internet works. But there's no doubt that VCs believe in it. $17 billion was invested in Web3 last year. So if we're the Web3 capital, which I would argue we are, like that is a huge, huge starting point for if that's going to be the technology everything is built on. Can the you, great companies of the future yeah. are coming from Miami. <laughs> Can you clarify for our listeners and my partner's partner, meaning myself, <laughs> and, and your Web partner's partner's partner? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. So yeah. basically, Web3 is the concept of decentralizing everything on the internet. So right now, we're kind of living in this Web2 world, with the exception of maybe crypto and NFTs. And Web2 is huge central companies controlling all of our data. So imagine Facebook, imagine Google all of the stuff that you give them or what they infer about you from your behavior is all controlled by them. And it's all owned, their databases, their servers, it's only them, right? Nobody can get access to that unless they choose to give you access and you have to pay as an advertiser to do Mm -hmm. that. What's happening in the Web3 world is there is no central authority. So crypto was the first example of that where there is no central bank. 
There's nobody who's actually controlling this money once it goes out there. It's basically community controlled from a decentralized perspective. And people are starting to realize that there's more uses for that than just cryptocurrency. The next step was NFTs. So you can have these JPEGs or these pieces of art that are basically, you can prove that you own that. You're the Mm -hmm. only one that owns it and no other sort of, it's the masses, the decentralized sort of mining, so to speak, to put in like crypto terms, that's verifying that. Brett Amron owns this ape JPEG, right? right? So that's basically the next step. And now people are like, okay, what's going to happen after this? Like, can it be our data, which is something that I'm working on? Could it be DeFi? So decentralized finance, can we take all of banking out of the hands of the big banks and just give control to people? There's DAOs, which are these decentralized autonomous organizations. I have a friend who's trying to buy the dolphins with one of these, which is just like basically like an organization that governs itself. And it's got rules and it's got voting and it's almost like a perfect democracy Mm. that's like built on blockchain. So there's all of these things like, could you run your condo association with one of those? Like, definitely, right? Or can you use blockchain to have the titles of homes so that it's unhackable and completely verifiable and you don't need a central authority? Yes, you can. Someone just did that in Florida last week. The first home was sold that way. So there's a lot of really cool innovation and I think it's just starting. So wait, can you explain the last part? The first home was sold... Explain how. Yeah, so someone basically sold a home and I'd have to look at all the details of how they did this, Mm -hmm. but basically it was sold like they managed to connect it into the normal system of like titling and all that. But essentially it was an auction where you could go in a decentralized way and purchase this house Mm -hmm. using cryptocurrency. And it wasn't that it was a traditional sale where someone just paid with crypto, but it was actually like the entire transaction happened on blockchain. So like, that's basically the way that you can start building this stuff and imagining like a world where everything's decentralized and you can build stuff on top of that. There will still be apps that are winners and losers, but the data itself is like no longer in the control of Facebook or Google. I'm not sure I understand it, but Um, it sounds very heavy. It does. So why is this the moment, right? I mean, to me, I hope it is, and I hope Miami continues to build from this. But right, traditionally, Miami is there's very little industry here. There's boom and bust, maybe perhaps more than than most cities, right? Maybe because of the blitz and like there's no substance behind it. So why is this the moment? Like, are you really seeing people moving down? I mean, I, my fear is like the first hurricane that hits, everyone flees and they're out. Or the first thunderstorm afternoon in July and it's 95 degrees and 100% humidity, you know? So why is this that moment? What are you seeing that really lends itself to that people are really sticking around here and building a community around this tech? It's a great question. I think for all of us who've been in Miami for a longer time, like Mm -hmm. it's something we want to help solve so that people don't have this feeling of like, okay, this was an experiment. Like I got crazy during COVID and I moved to Florida (laughs) and now now I'm out, right? Right, So I do think one thing in the city that like I can notice is like the optimism. Like I think there's this sort of environment of optimism Mm -hmm. that's like attracting people and getting people to come here. Well, we certainly have a, sorry to jump, we certainly have Mayor Suarez, right? Who is the mouthpiece for that, who's done a fabulous job of marketing the city or billing it as a sort of tech hub and open to tech. Yeah. And I think the timing for that message was incredible. And and mm-hmm. Mayor Suarez is awesome. Like he would come to Wincode campus long before this whole tech thing was something that was even talked about. And he'd grab lunch at Love Life and just come say hi. And so he really does believe in this mm-hmm. technology movement as a way to kind of lift everyone in Miami. And I think that's the key to this working long term is like, how do we get more Miamians and more South Floridians into the sort of right path when it comes to education and opportunity to benefit from this. Because 
the crazy thing about COVID is like, okay, maybe a lot of the top leadership and now maybe a lot of the young entrepreneurs are choosing Miami as their home base. But when it comes to like sort of technology labor pool, it's many companies are like, we're going to be fully remote forever. Right. So how do we like, is that good for Miami? In some ways it actually is because you can have the best talent from anywhere now and just basically have the leadership here, you know, and run the company locally from here. But how does it help people in Opalaka or how does it help people in Little Haiti? Mm. A lot of that comes to like making sure that the right sort of paths are available when it comes to education and even understanding technology as an industry, because I think it can be very difficult to imagine yourself working for a tech company Mm -hmm. if you don't have that background. And there are so many roles. You don't have to be a coder or a digital designer. You can be in technical sales. You can be an implementations person. Like There's so many different sort of paths that you can basically reinvent yourself or rebrand yourself so that it works in a tech context. And I think that's where Miami, all of us can also help, but Miami can put in more resources to try to help that path. And that's what's going to make it sustainable. How will people react with the first hurricane? I don't know. I remember um, (laughs) for us, you know, like I had the advantage of living here as a kid. So I had these memories, you know, as a third grade of a hurricane. But when our first son, Matthias, was born, literally our first night out of the hospital was evacuating from a hurricane to Mm -hmm. Naples. And I'll never forget going to the house and putting the shutters on and being like, oh, is this going to be here when we come back? And I think that it's... uh, Yeah, it's part of living here, but I think you also have natural disasters in California that are affecting people with wildfires, never mind earthquakes, hopefully not in our lifetime, but it's a real risk there. New York, hurricanes, flooding is a situation there. Boston, like I think as Miami has been like, let's say a very big poster child for like the excess of like, okay, we're built on mud and, Mm, you know, yeah, a limestone that's completely porous. Like those are not good things. And Do we have a lot to figure out with global warming and resilience for the future of our city? Yes. Should we be doing it here? Yes. And I don't see that right now as much as I'd like to. But but I think all these other places are not immune to it either at the moment. I do think, though, as traveling around, you said New York and California, I do think that because we are a newer city, right, than those, I do think that our infrastructure is a little bit more resilient. And because we've, you know, we just live with storms, right? Yeah. But yes, there's a lot of building in places that probably shouldn't be that are probably going to come to bear in the next decades. But I hope you're right. I hope that it is sustained. I think Miami, at some point, it's time, I think. I hope that Miami, and maybe this is Miami's time. Yeah, and And, it's an incredible growth story. If you go back to the beginning of Miami, Mm -hmm. like what fascinates me about this city is how quickly it's become a global city. Like there's outside of maybe cities in China and in some Asian countries, like, I can't think of a story where you go from 100 years ago, like a few thousand residents to like the numbers that we have today and and the global appeal of the city. So I do think that gives opportunity. I think if you have the right leadership and the people who see this as like, all right, maybe some of the stuff we did in the past wasn't perfect when it came to climate or being resilient, but like, let's use this as an opportunity to keep developing and progressing. Yeah, and we can't forget what brought people here in the first place. And that is the geography and the weather. Primarily. And so the waters, you know, we're ardent protectors of the waters, but protecting the waters and keeping them clean, updating our infrastructure to deal with all this migration to the city. We just need to invest back in the city. Totally agree. Uh, And I think tech can play a role in that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, it has. It has and it continues to. So kudos to you for leading that. That's right. It was because of the Mikolas coming down to Miami all those years ago, starting the trend. It's finally taken hold. Yeah, they were pioneers, true pioneers, tech pioneers. 
You guys and are so too now, kind. We can't take credit for it, he's but got it was nice to Crockett be a part hat of it. On, sitting here, look at him. Yeah, <laughs> it's nice pioneer. to be a part of it. <laughs> I, I feel like we've only uh, just scratched really? the surface with you. So will you come back for another? I would love to. Uh, yeah, this is awesome. Thanks, guys. I, I think we need another session about Web three. Yeah, well, I know maybe I you and I should I have our own little class. Can maybe yeah, uh, Brainstation so. can put? On yeah, or a class we'll buy an NFT right after for, this if for, you guys want. We for, can, I don't for know dummies, for yeah, exactly. <laughs> Transition. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Yuha, thank you so much yeah. for being here. If, this was awesome. Thank you, Yuha. Thank if, you to our it. listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five star review. Follow us. Share this <clears throat> podcast with your friends and family. And if you have any questions or you want to hear a new topic, please let us know. Reach out to us in the information below. Thank you, Nelson. Thank you, Nelson. Go Miami. For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at FastAmron.com.